This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by NVIDIA. As you no doubt know, deep learning, which is of course the fastest growing segment in artificial intelligence, was really only a theory until leading researchers around the world started using NVIDIA's GPUs. Now entire industries are being redefined from healthcare to retail. NVIDIA celebrates the innovators that are turning moonshots into real results, including those featured in this Voices in AI episode. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Esther Dyson. Esther Dyson is a living legend. She has been an angel investor and sits on the boards of a number of companies. She is also a best-selling author, a world citizen, and a backup cosmonaut for the Russian space program. Now, she serves as the executive founder for a nonprofit called The Way to Wellville, or Way to Wellville. Welcome to the show, Esther. Delighted to be here. So let's start with that. That sounds like an intriguing nonprofit. Can you talk about what its mission is and what your role therein is? Yeah, so my role was I founded it. And the reason I founded it was a question, which was, as I was an angel investor and doing tech and getting more and more interested in healthcare and biotech and medicine, I also had to ask the basic question, which is why are we spending so much money and like countenancing so much tragedy by fixing people when they're broken instead of keeping them healthy and resilient so that they don't get sick or chronically diseased in the first place. And the purpose of Way to Wellville is to show what it looks like when you help people stay healthy. So I could go on for way too long, but it's five small communities around the U.S. so you can get critical mass in a small way rather than trying to reshape New York City or something. And the basic idea is that this happens in the community. You don't actually need to like experiment and inspect people one by one, but change the environment they live in and then look at sort of the overall impact of that. And it started three years ago as a five-year project and a contest, and now it's a 10-year project, and it's more like a collaboration among the five communities. And one way AI is really important is that in order to show the impact you've had, you need to be able to predict pretty accurately what would have happened otherwise. So in a sense, these are five communities. The United States is the control group. But at the same time, you can look at a class of third graders and do your math and say that one third of these are going to be obese by the time they're 16, 30% will have dropped out, uh, 10% will be juvenile delinquents, and that's simply unacceptable. We need to fix that. So that's what we're doing. And I mean, we, we, we're, we'll get to the AI stuff uh, here in a moment, but I'm just curious, how do you go about doing that? That seems so monumental as being one of those problems like, where right. do you start? Yeah, and that's why we're doing it in small communities. And interestingly, my initial focus, I mean, part of the drill was ask the communities what they want, but at the same time I went in thinking, oh, diabetes and heart disease and, and exercise and nutrition. And the more we learned, the more we actually, as you say, you've got to start at the beginning, which is prenatal care and childhood if you have if you come from a broken home or with abusive parents 
chances are it's going to be hard for you to eat properly. It's going to be hard for you to resist drugs. There's a concept called adverse childhood experiences. Uh, the mind is a very delicate thing. I mean, in some ways, we're incredibly robust and resilient. But then when you look at you know, a third of the U.S. population is obese, a smaller number is diabetic according to age. Uh, you look at the opioid addiction problem. You look at the number of people who have problems with drinking or other kinds of behavior, and you realize, oh, they're all self-medicating. Let's again, let's let's catch them when they're kids and, and help them help them be addicted to love and children and exciting work and, and feeling productive rather than substances that cause other problems. And what gives you hope that um, you'll be successful? Have you had any promising early findings in the first five-year part? Um, not, not the kind you, you'd want. I mean, we're working with, the first thing is in each community, there, part of the premise was there's a group of local leaders who are trying to help the community be healthy. Mostly they're volunteers. They don't have resources. They're not accountable. So it's difficult. And so we're trying to help bring in some, but not all of that Silicon Valley startup culture. It's okay to fail as long as you learn. Uh, plan B is not a disaster. Plan B is the result of learning how to fix plan A and so forth. Uh, if you look at studies, it's pretty clear that having caring adults in a child's life is really important. If you look at studies, it's pretty clear that <laughs> there's no way you can eat healthily if you can't get healthy food, either because they're too poor or it's inaccessible or you, know, you don't know what's healthy. So some of these things are the result of childhood experiences. Some are the result of poverty, of transportation issues. Uh, you know, yes, you're right. All these things interact. And so you can't go in and fix everything. But if you, if you focus on the kids and their parents, that's a good place to start. And if the kid is going to, we, I've learned a lot of concepts. One of them is child storage as opposed to child enrichment. <laughs> so, you know, if, if your child is going to a preschool that helps them learn how to play, that has caring adults, that can help the kid overcome a horrible home environment, that's, it's not going to solve all the community's problems, but it's definitely going to help some percentage of the children do better. And that kind of stuff spreads just the way the opposite spreads. So in the end, is your is your hope that you come out of it with, a, I guess, a set of best practices that you can then disseminate? or um, People know the best practices. What we really want to do is two things. One, show that it's possible and inspire people that a regular community, this is not some multi-million dollar gated community designed for rich people to live healthy and fulfilling lives and go to the spa. This is a real, there are five of them, real places in various parts of America, Muskegon, Michigan, Spartanburg, South Carolina, North Hartford, Connecticut, 
Placid County, Oregon and Lake County, California, that normal people in these places can fundamentally change their community to make it a place where kids are born lucky instead of unlucky. And yes, they can look at what we did and, and there will be certain things we did, which you know, one includes the community needs to come together and different sectors like the schools and the business people and the hospital system need to cooperate and most likely somebody needs to pay and you need coaches to do everything from nurse visits, pre and post birth, early childhood education that's effectively delivered, caring teachers in the schools, healthy school lunches, uh, really sad to see government just backtracked on sodium and, and other stuff in the school lunches. But in a sense, we're trying to simulate what it would look like if we had really wonderful policies around fostering healthy childhoods and show the impact that has. So let's zoom the lens way out from there, because I, that, that might be an example of, of the kinds of things you hear a lot about today. It's, it's, it seems like it's a world full of insurmountable problems, and then it's also a world full of, uh, of real uh, legitimate hope um, yeah. that there's a way to, to get through them. So if I were to ask you in a broad way, how do you see the future? Like what lens do you look at the future, either of this country or the world or anything yeah. in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, like what, what do you think is going to happen and what will be the big driving forces? Yeah, well, I get my dopamine from doing something rather than sitting around worrying. <laughs> so, you know, intellectually, I see all these problems and practically I'm doing something about them the best way I know that will have leverage, which is doing something small and concentrated rather than diffuse with no impact. So I want to have real impact in a small number of dense places and then make that visible to a lot of other people and scale by having them do it, not by trying to do it myself. But you know, if there weren't hope, if you didn't have hope, you wouldn't do anything and nothing happens without people doing something. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, this is very circular, but I'm hopeful because I think, so I was a journalist and I didn't persuade people. I told them the truth. And ultimately I think the truth is extremely powerful. It's, you need to educate people to understand the truth and pay attention to it. But the truth is always much more persuasive than a lot of people, you know, just trying to cajole you or persuade you or deceive you or manipulate you. So I want to create a truth that is encouraging and moves people to action by making them feel that they could do this too, because they can, if they believe they can. And this is not believing you will be blessed. It's more like, hey, you got to do a lot of hard work and you need to change your community and you need to think about food and you need to be helping parents become better parents. But there's active things you can do. Is there any precedent for that? I mean, that sounds like it calls for changing lots of behaviors. 
And is there... Yeah, I was thinking, well, the precedent is all the lucky people we know whose parents did love them and who felt secure and did amazing things. Many of them don't realize how lucky they are. And there's also, of course, the people who had horrible circumstances and survived somehow anyway. And you'll find that many of them, I mean, one of the best examples currently is J.D. Vance in the book Hillbillyologies. Uh, yeah, many of them were just lucky to have an uncle or, you know, a neighbor lady or a grandmother or somebody who, who gave them that support that they needed to overcome all the obstacles. And and there's so many others who didn't. But yeah, I mean, certainly there's these people who've done things like this, but not, not ones that are visible enough or that really move people to action. And, and part of this, yeah, I mean, when we're, we're hoping to have a documentary that explains what we're doing, we're hoping to now it's too early because we haven't done that much. I mean, we've done a lot of preparation and the communities are changing, but believe me, we're not finished. Um, I will say when we started, we put out a call for applications and got applications for us to come in and help from 42 communities. Then in the summer of 2014, Rick Brush, our CEO, and I picked 10 of them to go visit. And one of them we turned down because they were too good. And that's the town of Columbus, Indiana, which is basically the company town of Cummins Engine, which, you know, it's just a wonderful place. And they were doing such a good job making their community healthier that we, we said, you know, bless you guys, keep doing it. We don't want to come in and claim the credit. And there's five other places that need us more. So, there's another town called New Ulm. I mean, there's, there are some pretty wonderful places in America, but there's also a lot of places that are lost their middle class. Uh, people are dispirited, high unemployment. They need employers. They need good parents. They need better schools. They need all this stuff. And we're not, it's not a nice white lady came from New York to tell you how to live or to give you stuff. It's, this team of five is here to help you fix things for yourself so that when we leave in 10 years, you own your community. You will help prepare it. Well, that, 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 sounds, that sounds wonderful in the sense that if you ever can affect change, it should kind of uh, be kind of a positive reinforcement, right? Like hopefully it, it kind of stays and builds on itself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like if, if you need us to be there, you know, yes, we believe we're helping and making a difference. But at some point, it's their community. They have to own it. Otherwise, it's not real because it depends on us. And when we leave it, it's gone. But they're, they're building it for themselves. We're just kind of poking them and counseling them and introducing them to programs and you know, hey, did you know this is what they're doing about adverse childhood experiences and this or that study? And this is how you can design a program like that for yourselves or hire the right training company and build capacity in your own community. A lot of this is training people in 
the community to deliver various kinds of coaching and care and stuff like that. So your background is squarely in technology. Let's switch right. gears and chat about that for a moment. What, let's start okay. with the topic of the show, which is artificial intelligence. What, what are your thoughts about it? Where do you think we're at? Where do you think we're going? What, what, do, you, what, do, you, where, what do you think it's all about? Yeah, well, so I first wrote about artificial intelligence because I had a newsletter you know, back in the days of Marvin Minsky and expert systems. So expert systems were basically logic. You know, if this and that and the other thing, then, you know, if someone shows up and their blood pressure is higher than X and so forth, and they didn't sell very well, then they started calling them assistants instead of experts. In other words, we're not going to replace you with an expert. We're just going to assist you in doing your job. And pretty soon they didn't seem to be AI anymore because they really weren't. They were simply logic, yeah. I mean, so the the definition of artificial intelligence to me is somewhat similar to magic. The moment you really, really understand how it works, it no longer seems artificially intelligent. It just seems like a, a tool that you design and it does stuff. And now, of course, we're moving towards neural nets and the so-called black boxes and things that actually you know, in theory, they can explain what they do, but now they start to program themselves based on large data sets. So you can't really, you know, they're, they're beyond the comprehension of a lot of people what exactly they do. And that's, that's you know, some of the sort of social ethical discussions that are happening. Or you ask a, a bot to mimic a human being and you discover most human beings make pretty poor decisions a lot of the time or reflect biases of their culture. Um, you know, it's, AI was really hard to do at scale back when we had very underpowered computers compared with what we have today. So now, now it's, now it's both omnipresent and still pretty pathetic in terms of AI is generally still pretty brittle. But you would say, and I know it's kind of a, a terrible term. Um, I mean, there's not even a consensus definition on what intelligence is, let alone what an AI is. But, but whatever it means, would you say we have, we have it to at least some degree today? Oh yeah, I mean. And what do you again? Do you... People, the the definition is becoming. Yes, the threshold of what we call AI is rising from what we called AI twenty years ago. And where do you think it will go? Do you think we're going to eventually build? And do you think that we're building something that, as it gradually gets better, and this kind of incrementalism, it's eventually going to emerge as a general intelligence? Or do you think the quest to build something as smart and versatile as a human will require like dramatically different technology than we have now? Um, well, there's, there's a couple of different things around that. First of all, you know, if something is not general, is it intelligence? Or is it simply, you know, good at doing a specific task? 
like I can I can do amazing machine translation now with large enough corpuses that simply does a whole lot of pattern recognition and translates from one language into another, but it doesn't really understand anything. And at some point, if something is, you know, a super intelligence, then I think it's no longer artificial. It may not be wet. It may be, you know, totally electronic, but then, I mean, if it's really intelligent, it's not artificial anymore. It's intelligent. It, it may not be human or you know, conceived or, or wet, but it, so, so it, it, the, but that's my definition. Someone else might just simply define it differently. No, that, that, that's quite legitimate, actually, because artificial, it's, it's unclear what the word artificial, what it's doing in the phrase. One, one view yeah. is that it's, uh, it's artificial in the sense uh, that artificial turf is artificial, that it may look like turf, but it's not really turf. And that sounds kind of like how you, not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds kind of like how, how you view it. it. It can look like intelligence for a long time to come, but it isn't really. It isn't intelligent until it understands something. And if that's the case, we don't know how to build a machine that understands anything. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, and there are all these jokes like, you know, the moment it becomes truly intelligent, it's going to start asking you for a salary or, you know, it's, I mean, there are all these different jokes about AI, but yeah, until quote has a mind of its own, you know, what is intelligence? Is it, well, that is it is a soul? Is it, is it purpose? You know, can you be truly intelligent without having a purpose? Because so, if you're truly intelligent, but you have no purpose, you will do nothing because you need a purpose to do something. Right. In the past, we've always built our machines with implicit purposes, but they've never right. kind of gotten a purpose on their own. Precisely. It's sort of like dopamine for machines. You know, what uh, is it that makes a machine do something? So it's and really then you have the runaway machines who do something because they want more electricity to grow, but they've been programmed to, to grow. So and that's are, not their own purpose. Right. Are you familiar with Sorrell's Chinese room analogy? You mean the guy sitting in the back room who does exactly. all the work? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the point of his illustration, which he says very vocally, is that the computer, because the, the punchline question is, does this man, who's essentially just looking stuff up in books, he doesn't speak Chinese, but he does a great job uh, answering Chinese questions, because he can just look stuff up in these special books. And, and but he has no idea what he's doing. He doesn't know if he's talking about cholera or coffee beans or cough drops yeah. or anything, right? And so the, the, the punchline is, is, does the man understand Chinese? And the interesting thing is, <clears throat> you're probably the first person I've spoken to who unequivocally says no. Uh, if there's nobody at home, it's not intelligent uh, because obviously Turing would say that thing's thinking. It understands. Well, uh, no, I don't think Turing would have said that. I think, I mean, the Turing test is a very good test for its time. But, I mean, and George would know this much better. But the ability to pass a test I mean, it, again, what AI was at that point is very different from what it is now. 
Right. He asked the question, can a machine think? And, and the real question right. he was answering in his own words was something to the effect of, could it do something radically different than us that doesn't look like thinking, but don't we kind of have to grant that it is thinking? And that's when he said, you know, this idea that you could have a conversation with something and right. therefore it's doing it completely differently. It's kind of cheating. I mean, it's not really obviously, but it's kind of shortcutting its way to, to knowing Chinese, but it doesn't really. So by, by, that, by that analogy or by that logic, you probably think it's unlikely we'll develop conscious machines. Is that right? Because. Well, no, I think we might, but then, I mean, it's going to be something quite, I mean, this is the really interesting question. In the end, something, you know, we, we evolved from just bits of, you know, carbon based stuff. And maybe there's another form of intelligence that could evolve from electronic stuff. You know, I mean, we're a miracle. And maybe there's another kind of miracle waiting to happen. But what, what we've got in our machines now is definitely not that. It is fascinating. I mean, um, Matt Ridley, rational optimist, uh, wrote that rational optimist said in his book that the, the most important thing to know about life is all life is one, is that life happened on this planet and survived one time and that we are, every living thing shares the same, a huge amount of the same DNA. And so, yeah, and I'm not sure I think it might have evolved multiple times or, you know, little bits went through the same process, but I don't think we all came from the same cell. I mean, I think it's much more likely there was a lot of soup and there were a whole bunch of random bits that kind of coalesced, but there might've been, you know, bunches of them that coalesced separately, but similarly. I see, and and back in their own day, merged into something that we are all we are all related to. Yeah. I mean, so, again, all carbon based. I mean, there's some interesting things at the bottom of the ocean that are quite different. Right. In fact, that suggests you're more likely to find life in the clouds of Venus, as inhospitable as it is. At least stuff's happening there, right? Like, than than you might find on a on a barren, more hospitable planet. Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk to people who, who believe in an AGI, who believe we're going to develop an AGI, and then you ask them when, you get this interesting range between five and 500 years, depending on who you ask. And these are all people who are, <clears throat> you know, kind of have, have, have some amount of training and familiarity with, with the issues. Um, what does that suggest to you that that you get that kind of a disparity from people. That what, what would you what would you glean from that? That we really don't know. <laughs> I think uh, that's a, really interesting because so many people are on that spectrum, 
Nobody says, oh, somewhere between five and 500 years. Like no person says that. The, the five-year people are, different. Yeah. A, a, but very confident, very confident. Uh, you know, we'll have something by 2050. Um, a lot of it, I think, boils down to whether you think we're a couple of hop skips and a jump away from something that can kind of take off on its own or it's going to be a long, long, long time. Yeah, and it's also how you define it. I mean, again, to me, in a sense, I've been thinking about this. I mean, you know, read you all know Harari, Homo Deus, um, and various other people. But, you know, to me, in the, in the end, there's something about purpose, which means, you know, again, it, it really is the, It's the anti-entropy thing. You know, what is it that makes you grow, makes you reproduce? That we know how that works physically, but then when you talk about a soul or a consciousness, there's some some animating thing, and or some animating force, and it's this purpose in in our you know in life it's reproduction to create more life and that's sort of an accident of something that had that purpose reproduced and the other stuff didn't i mean again there's more biological descriptions of that and where that where that fits in something that's not wet, how that gets implemented. I mean, purpose, we haven't yet found, slightly found substances that correlate with purpose, but there's some sort of anti-entropy that moves us without which we wouldn't do anything. So would you, if, if, if you're right, that without purpose, without understanding, with, with the, as fantastic as it is with our, with our very, stone knives and bearskins kind of AI we have today, I would guess, and not to put words in your mouth, but I would guess you are less worried about, you know, the AIs taking all the jobs than somebody else might be. What is your view well, on that? Yes, I mean, the AI is taking all the jobs. I'm sort of glad to be back on Terra for my year. Um, that is something that we can control. Not, not easily. I mean, it's just like saying we can we can control the government or we can control health, but you know, it is human beings collectively can, and I believe should start making decisions about what we do with that people and jobs. And I don't think we want a universal basic income as much as we want almost universal basic vouchers to so Again, I think people need purpose in their lives. They need to feel useful. And some people can create art and feel useful and sell it or just feel good when other people look at their art. But I think a more simple, more practical way to do this is we need to raise the salaries of people who do childcare, uh, coaching, you know, 
we need to give people jobs for which they are paid that are useful jobs. And I think the most useful thing people can do generally, you know, some people can become coders and design things and, and program artificial intelligence tools and so forth and build things. But a lot of people, I think, can be very effectively employed. And this goes back to the way to Wellville in caring for children, in coaching mothers through pregnancy, in running baseball teams in high schools. Uh, you know, we can sit here and talk about artificial intelligence, but this is a world in which people are afraid to let their kids out to play. And everywhere you go, bridges are falling down. And I live in New York City, and we're going to have to close some of our train tunnels because we haven't done enough repair work. There actually is an awful lot of work out there. We need to design our society more rationally, not by giving everybody a basic income, but by figuring out how to construct a world in which almost everybody is employed doing something useful and they're being paid to do that. And, you know, it's not like a giant relief act, but it is, this is a society with a lot of surplus and we can somehow construct it so that people get paid enough that they can live comfortable lives, not easy lives, but comfortable lives where you do some amount of work and you get paid. And, you know, at the, at the margins, yes, take care of people who've fallen off, but let's do a better job raising our children and creating more people who do, in fact, yeah, their their childhoods don't destroy their sense of worth and dignity, and they want to do something useful and feel that they matter, and they get paid to do that useful thing. And then we can use all the AI that makes society as a whole very rich, but consumption doesn't give people purpose. Production does, whether it's production of services or production of things do you have specific i mean i i i think you're entirely right that if you you could just on the back of an envelope say yeah we could use another half million kindergarten teachers and another quarter million i mean like you can come up with a list of things that like from a societal standpoint would be good and that maybe market forces aren't aren't creating uh, do you have any thoughts on how to, and, and that isn't just make work, it's all like actually really important stuff. Do you have any thoughts on how that would work practically? Is it, you, you yeah, implied it's I not mean, the WPA right. again, or is it? No, go to the people, go to the people who talk about the universal basic income and say, look, why don't you make this slightly different? Let's talk about, you know, you get double dollars for buying vegetables with your food stamps. How do we do something that gives everybody an account that they can apply to pay for service work? So every time I use the services of a professor or a babysitter or a basketball coach or a gym teacher, there's, there's this category of services. And then, I mean, this is, this is not simple or there's a certain amount of complexity here because you don't want 
to be able to to be gross, you know, hire the teenage girl next door to provide sexual services. So there needs to be, I think it needs to be companies rather than government, you know, just as companies, you know, whether it's Uber vetting drivers and that's a whole nother story, <laughs> but you want, you want an intermediary that does quality control, both in terms of how the customers behave and how the providers behave and manage the training of the providers and so forth. But then there's a collective subsidy to these, to the wages that are paid to the people who provide the services that fosters, you know, suddenly being a teacher, I mean, Long ago, women didn't have many occupations open to them, so second grade teachers tended to be a lot of very smart women who were dedicated and didn't get paid much, but that was okay. And now that's changing, but now we need to pay them more, which is great. And there's a collective benefit to having people teaching second grade that it benefits society and, and should be paid for collectively. In a way, you could, you could throw away the entire tax code we have and say for every item, whether it's a wage or uh, buying something or whatever, we're going to either calculate the cost to society or the benefit to society, and those will either be subsidies or taxes on top of that. So that the right. bag of potato chips... Right, and there's chip, a term... Yeah. <laughs> bag the of potato chips... Internalizing right. the externalities. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. No. I. Not only it's it's actually the only thing I can think of that doesn't actually cause perverse incentives because right. in theory all the externalities have been internalized and reflected in the price. Yeah, and so you're not interfering with the market. You're just letting the market reflect both the individual and collective costs and stuff like that. So, yeah, and it doesn't need to be perfect. We're imperfect. Life isn't perfect. We all die. But let's sort of improve things for the brief period that we're alive. So I can't quite gauge whether you're in theory optimistic or practically optimistic. Like, do you think we're going to accomplish these things? Do you think we're going to do some flavor of them? Or, or do you um, just realize their possibilities and we may or may not? I'm trying to make this happen. I mean, the way I would do that is not, gee, I'm going to do this myself, but I'm going to contribute to a bunch of people both doing it and feeling a lot more people would be doing this if they thought it was possible. So let's get together and, and become visible to one another, just as in what I saw happen in Eastern Europe, where individually people felt powerless, but then they and this really was where the internet did help. People began to see, oh, you know, I'm not the only one who is beginning to question our abuse of government. And people got together and felt empowered and started to change the story, both by telling their own stories and by creating an alternative narrative to the one that the government fed them. And in our case, you know, we're, we're being fed 
I don't know, we're being fed short term. Everything in our society is short term. I'm, I'm on the board of the long now, just for what it's worth. But so Wall Street is short term. Government politicians are mostly concerned with being reelected. People are consuming information in little chunks and not, not understanding the long term narratives or the structure of how things work or, you know. It's great to hear someone talk about externalities. If you walk down the street and ask people what an externality is, Bill, you know, is that like a science fiction thing or what? Uh, no, it's a real concept and one that should be paid attention to. So we, but there are people who know this and they need to stand together and, and change how people think about themselves and. The very question you asked, do you think you can do this practically? No, I can't alone. But together, yeah, we can change how people think about things and get them to think more about long-term investment, not this day-by-day, day, what's my ROI tomorrow or what's the next quarter? But if we do this now, what will be different 20 years from now? So it's never been easier, so I hear, to make a billion dollars. Uh, Google and Facebook each minted something like six billionaires apiece. The number of billionaires in, continues to grow. The number who made their own money, the percent that made their own money, continues to grow as opposed to inheriting it. But right. am I right that that isn't really, that all of that money that's being created at the top, that isn't, how, do you think that, I mean, mathematically, it contributes to income inequality because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's moving some to the end. But do you think that that's part of the problem? Do, do all of those billions get made at the expense of someone else? Or do those billions get made just independent of their effect on other people? Um, there's no simple answer to that one, and it varies. And I was very pleased to see the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation. And, um, and the people that bother me more, honestly, are in anything done in sufficient, you know, there's, there's a point at which you stop adding value. And I would say a lot of Wall Street is no longer adding value. Google, it depends what they do with their billions. And, I'm, I'm less concerned about the money Google makes and reminder, you know, it depends what the people who own the shares in Google do with the money they've made. Part of the problem is more the tools on the internet are encouraging some of this short-sighted thinking, instant gratification. You know, I'd rather look at cat photos than talk to my two-year-old or what have you. Uh, you know, this, for me, the issue is not to demonize people, but to encourage the ones who have assets and capacity to use it more wisely. And you know, sometimes they'll do that when they're young. Sometimes they will earn all the money and then start to change later and so forth. But you know, it's like taking 
the, the problem isn't that Google has a lot of money and the people in Muskegon don't. The problem is that the people in Muskegon or you know, so many other places, they have crappy jobs. The people who are parents now might have had parents who weren't very good. You know, things, things are going downhill rather than uphill. Their kids are no longer more educated than they are. They're, they no longer have better jobs. The food is getting worse, et cetera. And so it's, it's not simply an issue of more money. It's how the money is spent and what the, what the money is spent on. Is it spent accountably for the right things? Are, yeah, it's, it's not just giving people money. It's having an education system that educates people. It's having a food system that nourishes them. It's stuff like that. And we now know how to do those things. We also are much better because of AI at predicting what will happen if we don't. And it's, you know, I think the market and incentives and individual action are tremendously important, but you can influence them which is what I'm trying to do by showing how much better things could work. Well, no matter what, the, the world that you would, would envision as being a better world uh, certainly requires lots and lots and lots of people power, right? Like you need more teachers, you need more nutritionists, you need all of these other things. And so it sounds right, like you, you don't... people voting to fix the bridges instead of, you know, keep the voting on, you know, which politician makes promises that are unbelievable or whatever. I mean, it's, we, we need, in a sense, we need to be much more thoughtful about what it is we're doing and to think more about the long-term consequences. Do you think there ever was a time that, like, do you have any, um, society that you look at or even any time in any society when you say, well, they weren't perfect, but here was a society that thought ahead and planned ahead and, 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 you know, organized things in a pretty smart way. Do you have any, any examples? Well, I mean, yes and no, there, there was never like a perfect place. Um, a lot of things were worse a hundred years ago, including you know, how women were treated, how minorities were treated. Uh, a lot of people were poor, but there was much less a sense of, you know, we all deserve, there was a lot less entitlement. There was a lot less assumption around instant gratification. Uh, people invested, you know, they, in many ways, things were much worse, but people took it for granted that they needed to work hard and save. And again, many of them had a sense of purpose. But, you know, you go back to the 1840s and the amount of liquor consumed was crazy. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no perfect society. There were certainly... Yeah, the, the norms were better. There, perhaps there was more hypocrisy. You know, there were a lot of 
hey, there was a lot of crime 100 years ago. And sort of the notion of polite society was perhaps not all a society, but the aspirations, I think, were... People didn't aspire to be celebrities. They aspired to be respected and loved and productive and so forth. Let's talk briefly about... I mean, Go ahead. Just, I mean, it just goes back to that word purpose. You know, it's being a celebrity does not mean having an impact. It means being well-known. And there's something lacking in being a celebrity, being a value to society versus being a value to society. And I think there's, there's less aspiration towards value and more towards something flashier and emptier. And that's what I'd love to change. It Without you, being Puritan and boring about it. Right. It seems you keep coming back to the purpose idea, even when you're not using that word. Yeah. But you talked about Wall right. Street used to, used to add value and they don't. That's another way to saying they've lost their purpose. And we talked about the billionaires. It sounds like you're like, I'm fine with it. It depends on what their purpose of it all with it. How yeah. do you think people find their purpose? Um, you know, it goes back to their parents, but by feeling that they've, you know, there's this satisfaction that really can't be beaten. Uh, you know, when, when I spent time in Russia, the, the women were much better off than the men because the men felt many of them purposeless. They did useless jobs and got paid money that was not worth much. And then the wives took the rubles and stood on line to get food and raised the children. And so the women, I mean, having children gives you purpose, ideally. You know, and then you get to the point where your children become just one more trophy. And that's unutterably sad. Uh, and, you know, the people who love the children and also kind of focus too much on is this child popular or will he get into the right college and reflect well on me. Um, but I mean, in the end, children, children are what give purpose to most people. Let's talk about space for a minute. It seems that a lot oh, sure. of, okay. a lot of Silicon Valley folks, um, noteworthy ones have an, have a complete fascination with it. You know, you've got Jeff Bezos hauling Apollo 11, you know, boosters out of the ocean. You have Elon who's planning to, you know, according to him, die on Mars, just not on impact. Yeah. Um, you obviously have a... I, I, want, mean, I want to retire on Mars. That's my, my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk a little bit about... Not too soon. About what do you think... You know, there's a large part of this country, for instance, that doesn't really care about space at all. It seems like a whole lot of, you know, wasted money and emptiness and all of that. What do you, yeah. why do you think it's so intriguing and why do you think, what about it is interesting to you? And for goodness sakes, yeah. I, I, I can't put you, you trained to be a backup cosmonaut in your introduction and then not, that's like the, the worst thing a host can do and then never mention it again. So please talk about that okay. if you don't mind. Well, I mean, so there's the, it's our destiny. we we should spread. It's our backup plan if we really screw up the earth and obliterate ourselves with, whether it's with a 
polluted atmosphere or an explosion or some kind of biological disaster. Uh, we need another place to go. Mars is, so it's, number one, it's a good backup. Number two, maybe we can learn something. There's this wonderful new thing called the circular economy. And the reality is, yes, we're in a circular economy, but it's so large we don't recognize it on Mars. Because you start out so small, it's much clearer that there's a circular economy. I'm hoping that the National Geographic series is actually going to change some people's opinions. But it's, you know, in some sense, our purpose is to explore, to learn, to discover what else might lie beyond our own little planet. And again, it's, it's always good to have option B. And so, um, final question. We already talked about what you're working on, but what gives you, if you, if, because the, our, our chat had lots of ups and downs, possibilities, and then, you know, and then worries. What, what is, if there is anything, what gives you hope? What gives you hope that, you know, there's a good chance we'll muddle through this? Um, I'm an optimist. I'm, I have hope because I'm a human being and, it's been bred into me over all these generations. The ones who weren't hopeful didn't bother to try and they mostly disappeared. But now you can survive even if you're not hopeful. And so maybe that's why all this pessimism and lassitude and stuff is spreading. And if um, anybody maybe we listen- should all go to Mars where it's much tougher and you you do need to be hopeful to survive. Yeah, and have, have purpose. Um, yeah. And so anybody, in closing, anybody who wants to keep up with what you're doing um, with your nonprofit, can, can you... Waytowellville.net. Uh, way to Wellville. Wellville.net. And if people want to get a hold of you uh, or keep up with you personally, how do they do that? Um, probably on Twitter at E. Dyson. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you so much for finding the time. Thank you. And you have it a good day. It was really fun. Bye-bye. I'd also like to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this episode, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, after all, the inventor of the GPU, which has ignited the modern AI era. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out their AI podcast called AI Podcast. It's available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.